Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Blue Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Doing Well. And I'm here with our guest, as always, to talk about well-being and the science behind it. Today, I have a very interesting topic that we have addressed before, but today we're going to look at it from a different angle. Today, we're going to talk about the role of sexual empowerment in mental health and overall well-being, which I think not a lot of us are open to talk about. And, you know, it's about time we talk about it more. And my guest today is... uh, I think in New Zealand at the moment, but she has a very interesting story. I'm sure she will tell us all about it. Um, But by way of introduction, I have in the virtual studio with me today, Jessica Maxwell, PhD. She is an assistant professor in the social psychology program in the Department of Health, Aging and Society at McMaster University. So Jess, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm so excited to talk about the topic. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, this is a topic I'm really passionate about. So I'm grateful uh, to share some of my wisdom. Yeah. And thanks so much for joining us, even though you have a little bit of a cold. Uh, So, you know, in case our audience (laughs) wonders, you know, if Jess needs to take a break or if she sounds like she's a bit sad. No, she's not. (laughs) Her voice just needs a little bit of TLC. So, yeah, we'll we'll definitely get there. Um, But I think what is interesting to me is when I was researching your work, right, I told you about this. I was like, oh, wow, you studied at UWT and, you know, like it seems like you were studying in Canada. I don't know if you were from there. And then you landed here and then you have all these like different research and, you know, articles. So tell us a bit more about yourself, you know, your professional journey. How did you land here and why are you so interested in talking about today's topic? Yeah, great question. So yeah, when I was in undergrad, um, so I am Canadian. So when, when I was in uh, undergrad studies at the at Queen's University, I was taking a social psychology class in second year, and I really loved that. And then when I when I went to third year, I took a class on human sexuality, which I feel like just like blew my mind. So I grew up, grew up in a pretty um, like religious environment. I didn't really have like comprehensive sex ed. Um, and so, you know, I feel like in, in college or university, depending where your listeners are from, uh, you know, just kind of, I feel like just that college experience and watching Sex in the City and, you know, taking a human sexuality class really got me interested in the topic. And then when I found out that it was something that you could actually study using the scientific method, I was like, oh my goodness, like, I feel like this is my calling. Um, And so I consider myself a a mix between a relationship researcher and a sexuality researcher because my focus is really on how couples can have better sex lives and better relationships. Uh, So I like to tell people and kind of just get, um, you know, get it straight right off the bat that unfortunately I am not a couples therapist. Um, So I don't, I never really wanted to work one-on-one with people. I'm kind of more of a data nerd. So I love stats. So what I tend to do is look at sort of on the aggregate, like 
groups of couples. So on average, what sorts of beliefs will make people have better sex lives, for instance? So um, I never was really interested in my professional journey of doing the, the therapy thing. I really, really liked the research aspect. And so I've been fortunate enough to uh, continue researching uh, relationships and sexuality when I did uh, my PhD at the University of Toronto. And then um, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at Florida State University. So that was a big switch from Toronto to Tallahassee. Um, I, I met my husband when I was on my postdoc, so that was good um, from a personal perspective. And then I got my first academic job um, at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. So close to the, you know, close to Australia where you are. Um, and I absolutely loved New Zealand. Um, but after three years, I felt I just really, really missed home. You know, it was a pandemic. We couldn't leave New Zealand. And as amazing as New Zealand was, it just wasn't home for me. So I felt fortunate that I just recently started at McMaster University uh, that is here in Canada. Um, and I get to, oh. yeah, so I'm back in Canada now. Um, You're back. Okay. Yes, yes, which is great. But I really did love New Zealand. Um, and I feel so lucky to do the job that I do. So I just finished this semester teaching undergrads um, a class on the psychology of close relationships and then another class on sex and well-being, which is obviously perfect given uh, the content of today's podcast. So I'll, I'll, I promise I won't like, you know, squeeze a whole semester worth of content into this podcast, but I feel like I could. <laughs> oh, yes, please. I would love that. I would love to see <laughs> one of your classes. It sounds so interesting. Um, I think, you know, like this is a topic that, as I mentioned, my friend and I, my friends and I talk about quite a bit. And um, I think we all have different perspectives, but I think uh, the, the underlying um, issue that we probably don't really realize is how we view it. You know, like, because it's so different for each of us. And like you said earlier, you you were brought up in a certain environment where you're not really, you didn't really get any mm -hmm. success and you didn't really know much about it. So got, that got you interested. And mm -hmm. as I told you where I'm from, I'm from Vietnam and we really honestly yeah. did not have much sex at either. Um, it's a new thing for me. So when I moved to Australia, I was like, wow, it's so interesting. Uh, so we have a lot of different perspectives because obviously you've been around, I've been around. Um, so we'll have fun with it. And hopefully we bring a lot of perspectives to our audience today. But before we do that, we have a section where we called, have you met Jess? We want Ooh, to get some okay. of your recommendations. I love this part because I get oh, great recommendations from my guests. Okay. And, you know, like I just have fun with it. And sometimes I take it on. Sometimes it's just an opportunity for the guests to share more about themselves and what they like, what they enjoy. Um, and I think that's a, be a, a really good way for our audience to get to know the guests better. So Jess, yes. are you ready? Okay, perfect. Okay, I'll do my best. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Don't think too much. Just the first thing that pop into your head when you hear it. What is a okay. book you would recommend? I like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> okay, cool. What about a movie? Dirty Dancing. It's a classic. I love it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> love it. I actually just watched it like last year or something, but it's really oh, good. Oh, really? Yeah, and it, yeah. It, it holds up like decently well considering when it was made. <laughs> Yeah, because, uh, you know, I watch a lot of things and then they just make Dirty Dancing reference. And I was like, yes, now I, no, I really original. need to watch it. Yeah, like, what is it about? Like, I don't understand. I need to watch it to understand the reference. I did. So now I do. <laughs> no, you do. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Hopefully you liked it. Hopefully you liked it and you don't, you know, just end the podcast yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, okay, next one. It's a must ask because obviously you're our guest. But what is a podcast that you would recommend? I am such a podcast junkie. I love so many podcasts, but one I've re recently enjoyed is Bear Brook. So if you're into okay. true crime, uh, it's good. There's two seasons now that have separate stories. So true oh, wow. crime, um, I won't spoil it, but like the first one, 
actually was kind of like important in terms of real, real life outcomes. That makes sense. Mm. So Bear Brook, like Bear, mm. like Rar, and then Brook. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I, uh, I think I was kind of la- laughing and smiling in the background because uh, our team here at LMSL, I think like half of the team love true crime podcasts and true crime documentaries and anything true crime. So I'm sure they all love this recommendation. (laughs) Those are my people. (laughs) Yeah, definitely your people. Um, How about your famous role model or if not a famous person, then who's your personal role model? Oh, okay. That's good. I was thinking famous role models. One of them not related to my career is just Betty White, because I think she was such an amazing and inspiring woman. Um, Of course, there's other people like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, all of those kind of classic people. But I feel like um, also just more, you know, more close to home. Like I feel like uh, my great grandma and my grandma, just I come from a long line of like strong-willed, independent women. And I always really look up to that. And I think of, and this will probably come through in the podcast a lot, but like, you know, how much women are at a disadvantage sometimes. And so I think it's especially cool when it's like, even when it was that much harder, thinking of women who were able to kind of carve their own career path or, you know, manage a lot of children and, and all of that. So I feel like women are amazing. And, uh, you know, whether we're talking about famous people or just kind of closer to home, I'm fortunate to have lots of good role models in my life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and final question in this part is what is a course you've completed that you would like to talk about? Ooh, in terms of, yeah, so I wasn't sure about that one. I kind of was thinking, uh, a course I completed, I think that I would talk about the courses I teach. I don't know if that counts, but yeah, um, sure. <laughs> so the course I just completed teaching was sex and well-being, but why I was excited about that and why I would recommend taking a class like that is because, well, research does show that if you take a sexuality class, it helps you be more open-minded. Um, so I think that's important from students. And I really enjoyed teaching that course because I got to bring in lots of fun things. So I love the media and, you know, watching, like we were talking about movies, TV shows, podcasts. So I end up doing that a lot in my classes and kind of finding any, any podcast I can tangentially related to, to the topic, like my students will listen to it. So we listened to like a podcast on the book, Men Are From Mars, Men Are From Venus. Um, You know, there's books on the five love languages. Like I like to debunk a lot of media things. Mm, wow. Okay. Well, the, you're going you're gonna to have to debunk a bunch of things later then, because now that you've <laughs> yes, mentioned yes. it, I'm keen to know more. So without further ado, let's get into today's topic. And because the show is about well-being, let's start by mm. getting your definition on well-being, because uh, all of the guests here have very different definitions. There might be a lot of overlaps, but I find that each person's definition is super unique. So what is your personal yes. definition of well-being? Oh, and I love that you said personal definition, not like the ones in the literature, right? Because the literature also, again, kind of doesn't agree on what exactly well-being is. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's not what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> to me, well-being is just sort of being at ease or at peace physically, mentally, and emotionally, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. It's like there's that balance that's so important, right? Because uh, I think a lot of the guests also mentioned like, you know, sometimes you think it's one thing, but no, it's like you're missing the whole picture because there are so many different things in our lives. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's like a, you know, you can't, there's so many different aspects of it, right? It can't just be one thing. Yeah. It's hard to define, right? I think it's kind of elusive in that we're all searching for (laughs) well-being. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like uh, I'm, I don't know if uh, anyone would agree 
Um, but I think it's like a constant struggle because yes, at, yes. at a certain point you, you might find yourself like, oh, like I, I feel great physically, mentally, right. but not there yet emotionally. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. it could be like, oh yeah, like I feel great emotionally. I feel great mentally, but my physical health is kind of in decline a little bit and I need to work on that. And I feel like it's like this constant battle of finding yeah. what is and like what's wrong and you know keep working on that because it's not it's not like it's always going to be perfect uh, and no, sometimes exactly even all of them might be in decline not just one it's true it's true it's like yeah you can be really excelling in one domain but not the others but as I'm sure will come out through our chat too it's like everything is so interconnected even if we're talking about like your you know your happiness and then your relationship quality and your sexual quality it's all feeding into each other yeah, absolutely. So I think we just uh, sort of touched on one of the misconceptions about well-being, right? Like you, you cannot, you you don't always have it all. You can have it all, yes. but you don't always have it all. And that's okay. It's just a constant, you know, journey of finding out what works for you. So in your line of work, I'm pretty sure, especially in the in the area of, you know, like social psychology, um, you definitely come across a bunch of misconceptions when it comes to well-being. So yes, I wonder what, yes. what are some of the biggest ones that you've noticed? Mm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, well, oh, wow, there's so many, but a couple that come to mind are just yeah. uh, sometimes what we think will make us happy doesn't, right? Or things that we think will make us happy, like, or would make us happy forever might just last a short time. So, you know, things like winning the lottery, it's not going to make you as happy as you think it will, or, you know, um, getting married. Yes, it's going to make you happy, but it might not last as long as you think that happiness. So I think that's one misconception. But more broadly, I think another misconception is that well-being is like the absence of disease or dysfunction. So this comes up a lot when we speak specifically about the sexual domain. I think people think like sexual health and sexual well-being. They think like not having an STI or, you know, not having erectile dysfunction. And they don't really think of sort of the positive side, right? It's like having well-being to me is the presence of positives and not just the absence of negatives. Um, so I think that can sometimes be, be a misconception there. Um, and, and I think the last thing I'll add there is I think we often think that, you know, well-being is the same as being like happy all the time. And it really isn't. So to me, at least in my definition and some other people's theories, right, like well-being, that's why I said it's being at ease or at peace. Like it, it, it it's being comfortable with a whole range of emotions, right, and, and, and being authentic and things like that. So it's not necessarily that, you know, you're just like skipping along every day, loving life. Um, I think we can have high levels of well-being if we're feeling fulfilled and we're feeling like we're being our true self, even if we have some negative emotions sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah, that is so true. I really love that. I, I think that is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, mm. I, I think it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily related to today's topic per se, but I felt like there's there's been some sort of like imbalance. And I was kind of thinking, why you know like i didn't really know why and for a really long time like i think the past couple of months i was just kind of like floating through and i was like something is off but i don't really know what it is you know and i was kind of like thinking about you know like one of the misconceptions that you mentioned and i was like why am i not feeling like great you know yes, yeah and and i i'm annoyed because i'm not feeling great and then i was like but you know what it's okay 
like it's okay to feel funky sometimes yeah, because exactly. I still take care of my physical health, you know, and I've, I've talked to uh, my colleagues and my guests pretty much like every week on this show that, you know, I've been working out daily and that's been so helpful for both my physical health and mental health. Um, emotionally, I don't know, because like, it's a, it's kind of like it fluctuates and, you know, things happen. I just don't really, like, I cannot really put my fingers around it. And then yesterday I just sat down and I read this really beautiful poetry book. I'm pretty oh. sure everyone knows about Rupi Kaur and your, her, yes. her latest uh, collection of poet poems called home body. And I was like, I realized, Oh, you know what? This is good because, you know, like I've been feeling like so, there's sort of a, a disconnect, even though, as I said, I've been working on my physical health, but like, I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect. So long story short, after I read the book, I realized I have productivity anxiety. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're just, you're yeah. constantly worried about feeling like you need to be productive. and yeah. yeah. And then I was like, that's why I wasn't feeling happy. That's why I was, my mm. emotions kind of like was kind of like fluctuating. I was like, something is off about me within myself. I couldn't really put my fingers around it. And then, and then I realized that last year I worked really hard on a lot of things and I yes. didn't take a break. You know, I, I was really burnt out. I know that I was burnt out and I took a long vacation. I mean, actually not one long vacation, but like a couple of different ones, but for some different factors, I never actually recovered from burnout. Yes. And that's so important. And I was going to say, like, even when we get into talking about specifically like sex, like burnout and stress can have repercussions yeah. there, right? It's like, not yeah. only will they affect your work life, your friendships, like every aspect of your life, but even, even the bedroom too. And I think it's really good that yeah. you recognize that you were feeling some burnout. Yeah. yeah. So then, yeah, when, when I couple the two together, I just really want to talk about it on this show because this show is about well-being, right? And I think our audience would, some of us, you know, some of the audience would relate with this um, because sometimes you're like, oh, like I need to do more in life. Yes. Yes. You know, like I need to progress more. Like, why am I not doing more? And yesterday I sat myself down and I was like, Lou, listen, it's okay to just enjoy life. Yes. Yes. Like have some self-compassion and, yeah. and try not to, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was going to say to put like a social psych term on it. Um, we would call that in a way, maybe trying to like maximize, right? Like in terms of like, you're always trying to like be the best, do the best. And, and that can just take a toll for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, about today's topic, uh, now I'm going to be very mm. honest, I'm I'm single and I just don't really have uh, a sex life right now, but I'm <laughs> sure our audience, you know, like our audience would be in different like scenarios in their lives and we can sort of all relate. So just to kind yes. of have context, uh, you know, let's try to make this conversation as inclusive as we can, because of I course. think even single people can relate to this, right? A thousand percent. Like, and I've even done some research on like casual sex. Um, yeah. And in my own research, I found for single people, their sex life is tied to their well-being to the same extent as people in relationships, right? So yeah. even if single people aren't always having sex, some of them definitely are. That looks different. We can get into it if yeah. we want, you know, friends like yeah, that. We'll get into that. The whole, the whole gamut. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I love that idea, right? Because that's yeah. the thing. It's like, yeah, it can, it can, yeah. sex can happen in a lot of different yeah. types of relationships. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I never really, as I said, I don't really talk about this topic very often. It is actually quite hard for me to talk about it today, I, I think to a certain extent, because I didn't yeah. really have any education. I mean, obviously, like, as a grown up, I've watched a lot of like TV series, movies, talked to yeah. friends about it, um, read articles and read books about it. But I think it's still a new area. And again, mm -hmm. it it can be relatable to everyone because everyone has a sex life. No sex life is a sex yes. life, I, I would exactly. say, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. Like asexuality is kind of, yeah, recognizing that you don't, you know, it's like something, yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah. And I think what's interesting too is um, as much as I feel like we think like, oh, it's 2023 and, you know, it seems like media is really liberal and, you know, everyone's out having sex. Like there's a lot. I, I'm always shocked when I'm teaching you know, yeah. current like 22 year olds at, at what they don't know. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, we could go on a whole thing. I feel like comprehensive <laughs> sex ed and the lack of sexual education in a lot of places yeah. is, a, is a huge problem. Um, but you're, you're in good company, right? Because I feel like so many people have not had proper sex ed or still feel taboo talking about sex. Oh yeah. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Or if they had sex ed, it was very like, you know, fear based or, or uh, prevention yeah. based and sort of more health based, but not in terms of like, how to have a healthy sexual relationship. So I think it's yeah. really normal that it's um, something people still struggle with and, and mm -hmm. something I think still people find taboo to speak about, even younger generations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Trust me. Definitely. <laughs> I know that because I have uh, my, my group of friends range from like really young, like 18, 19 year olds to like much older than me, you know, 30, 40. And I think like it's a it's a very interesting area to navigate. As I said, it's um, it's a spectrum of everything and everyone can relate to this to a certain extent. But I think the one thing that would ground us before we go into the different aspects of it and the misconceptions or, you know, like the myths that you are going to debunk, <laughs> what does sexual empowerment mean? And again, I would very much love for you to help us understand it from an inclusive perspective. Yeah, it's interesting when I saw the phrasing kind of sexual empowerment, because I feel like it could mean different things to different people. And it's not necessarily like the verbiage that we would use in, in the field in terms of what I think you're getting at. So I'll go with what I think you're getting at. You can let me know if that's sort of the vibe you're thinking. But when I hear the word sexual empowerment, I think of someone being comfortable and confident with their sexuality. And I also think about that, including sort of being feeling comfortable asserting yourself in the bedroom. So being comfortable telling your partner what you like versus what you don't like, um, and just feeling like you can be yourself in your sex life. Does that yeah. ring true to what you were kind of imagining with sexual empowerment? Yeah, that's what that was what I was kind of thinking as well. And you put yeah. it into words perfectly. I, I mean, okay, again, awesome. I'm, I'm not the expert here. You are. <laughs> I think, yes, I think it's, yeah. it's good to hear from your perspective because you've done a lot of work, um, you know, looking at different people. Right. So that's the, the start to the conversation. But then you mentioned something earlier because, you know, when I was sharing my story early, earlier, you were kind of saying like, you know, burnout can have an impact on everything, including the bedroom. And, you know, at the same time, you just gave us the definition of sexual empowerment, you know, feeling comfortable in your own skin, being able to assert needs and mm -hmm. talk about different mm -hmm. things. And again, it's all related to well-being, right? So exactly. if we put all of that together, how would you say, mm. um, like, how would you say sexual empowerment can affect our well-being overall? Because there are so many ways this can go, right? It can, exactly. it can be like sexual empowerment level really good, or it could be really bad. And yes. you know, in yes. turn, that will affect our well-being. So how does that work? 
And I was just about to say, like, I think that's the thing that's uh, good and bad, right? Is that I always say, like, there is so much evidence that sex is tied to our happiness and our well-being. And that can be a great thing because it means that having great sex or enjoying your sex life can, you know, lead to increases in life satisfaction and happiness. But we could think of it in a more negative way as well, meaning if you're not satisfied with your sex life, that could detract from your overall sense of well-being. So um, just to give you kind of a flavor, one of um, an early study that I think is interesting, what they did was they pulled women multiple times a day, like they'd get an alert and they were asked, what are you up to and how happy are you and a bunch of different emotions. And they found that of all the activities people were doing during the day, sex was the activity that led to the most considerable amount of happiness. So even more than things like socializing with friends or eating dinner, it was like sex had this special feature in terms of being the most positive experience. Um, and then I feel like when we get into the thing, thinking about stress and well-being, it, it can sometimes be bi-directional, right? And I feel like that resonates with a lot of us, right? It's like, if you're super stressed, for most people that reduces their desire and they don't really want to have sex if they, you know, if they're like super stressed with a work deadline. I mean, some people do have sex to reduce stress, but for the most part, if you're super stressed, you're not wanting to have sex. Um, and then, you know, if you're not having sex, that can cause you stress too, right? Because then you're, you know, you're not getting those boosts to your well-being that's, you know, might come from things like hormones or I think often just come from the relational benefits that happen with sex. Um, so yeah, like the, the well-being sex link is definitely something that's there. The association, I think it sometimes can go both ways. They can influence each other. And it's something that's maybe not as explored as much as you would think it would be by now. Um, but of course there are a lot of like nationally representative surveys that show cross-sectionally, um, you know, that link between having more sex or better sex and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, <laughs> Uh, I think it's like a, a new thing to, to for me to think about at least because I don't know if other people think about it in that sense. Um, for example, I have uh, some of my friends who are really, you know, active in their sex life. But they don't really talk about the benefit of their sex life in their well-being. Mm. It's just, it's just mm. mainly around, you know, like, oh, you know, like I just need I have, I have needs and I need them to be met. Something along that line. But it, it's never a conversation about how much that improves their well-being for example yeah or even like how it improves their like day-to-day mood or yeah. one of the favorite studies I love sharing that came out a couple of years ago found that if you have sex tonight it's going to boost your work productivity and your mood tomorrow so I think there are all these things but yeah I think you're right people don't always go to that step of saying yes I think this is yeah you know affecting my global satisfaction with life um yeah I think I think people often um fail to appreciate the spillover that sex has to other domains, including well-being, right? And, and including yeah. relationship well-being. So I think it's like we like to sometimes silo sex as thinking of it as something separate or it's like a physical need, but it really is something that's emotional um, and something that can link to well-being through so many different pathways, I think, that we're still sort of exploring um, yeah. as a field. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, like I know this question was not in the agenda, but I have to ask because you know, when when it comes to work, right? You don't go to work talking about this topic, right? Even no, though you no, just, exactly. Yeah, you just said having sex today will improve your productivity tomorrow. That's a very interesting thing, but you never talk about this. And you're right. I, you're right. And I think like it. It's because of uh, you know professionalism obviously you, you're not going to mention these kinds of topic and right, uh, right. you don't you don't go around asking their colleague about their sex life 
unless you know you're yeah. really close and you you actually talk about that. Um, but I, I want to ask in terms of like the attitude when it comes to the conversation because I don't know if this has happened anywhere you know in organizations mm. where they actually so this is about employee well being right and. The reason ah. I ask this is because it's not it's not just about having a, like a healthy sex life, but also how do we approach the conversations with people? Uh, as I said, we want to be inclusive, right? There are people yes, that are single, yes. you know, there are right, people that are um, single because they are not coupled up with anyone or single because they are single parents. There are people yes. that are in relationship, you know, like and all that sorts of yeah. things in, uh, in life. And if you go to a, an organization, they'll be like, all of them, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, I think, I think there's a reason why most employers to my knowledge, like don't think about sex in terms of well-being. And I wouldn't like, adv- like, you know, I wouldn't advocate yeah, that yeah. they do. Cause I feel like, yeah. you know, sexual harassment, like all of that would be rampant. Um, but it is interesting to think about how, you know, having sex could actually be something that be- is benefiting businesses their employees yeah. are having more fulfilling sex lives, but how could they promote it in a way that's inclusive? I think, I think it can get yeah. really tough, right? And, and realizing yeah. that for many people, sex is associated with trauma and for other people, they might be asexual and have, you know, not want sex or people experiencing, you know, mm. um, some sexual distress if they have, say like erectile dysfunction or low sexual interest. Uh, so yeah, I think it would be kind of a can of worms for organizations, but I think it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, interesting to think about because I, yeah. I would argue sex is a key factor in well-being you know yeah definitely I mean I don't have the answer and I, I just had that random thought in my mind because yeah. you know like it's, yeah, it's, interesting. it's interesting it's interesting how how closely related these two topics are oh, yeah. yet you know like uh, you know when it comes to a, a, an organization especially uh, especially the corporate environment it's just like you go and you talk about work yes. you talk about yes. numbers and you, you don't talk about well-being. No. <laughs> and sex is part of well-being, as we know. So it's and, true. and it's, I know it's very hard to talk about these things because as you as you said, harassment can be a real thing. You know, yes. if you don't choose the right wording, it can come out really wrong. And I, I actually heard yeah. from uh, one of my friends the other day, and she was kind of saying like, um and it's it's actually quite horrendous to hear, but she was kind of saying like one of her colleagues was just like he kept talking about sex. And I was kind oh. of like Right. So, so then that is not really. No, exactly. That's it would make you really, uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. So obviously it's a very hard space to navigate. Uh, but you know what? In the context of this show, we hope that you know there will be employees that listen to this, employers that listen to this, to kind of like understand perspective at least. Right? It doesn't, you yeah, don't have to yeah. talk about it if it's an, a hard topic to navigate. Um, and then perhaps I think it will take a us as a society so many more years to actually think about like how we're going to approach such topic especially in Mm -hmm. the professional context Mm -hmm. um but yeah like i think it's it's so important to know because it's kind of like if you don't think about it it's kind of like you just you don't think of others as humans you know your colleagues we're all humans something could be happening to them yeah it's true and i like to say too it's like everyone is here as a result of sex right i think it's (laughs) so funny because um sexuality science and and the topic of sex doesn't always get much like I feel like sometimes people look down on us a little bit or don't take us seriously and I'm like listen this sex is probably more relatable to most people and it's the reason we're here and the reason the human race is here like and propagate so like it is important to think about and and yeah Yeah. this link to well-being I think is super interesting to explore yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation, and I want to go back to that uh, because now we're going to go into 
you know, the sexual empowerment side of things when it comes to empowerment. Um, you mentioned uh, something about myths, um, debunking right. myths, uh, myths and things like that. And um, I, I believe yes. that there would also be, you know, like different kinds of attitudes and beliefs about it as well, right? Because we, we just touched on that earlier. There'll be like, you know, there'll be people that just avoid talking about it altogether. There'll be people that think mm -hmm. that it's taboo. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there would be a lot of different kinds of attitudes and beliefs when it comes to sexuality or sex in general. Oh, for sure. That would, yeah. You know, that would, that would just make things worse. Um, and, Ooh, yes. uh, you know, like single people have a certain way of looking at it, you know, couples have a different way of looking at it. And yeah. people who are, you know, like in different kinds of sexuality, like especially, for example, asexual people, they have a different way of looking at it. So what are some of the biggest, you know, harmful yes. myths and beliefs that mm. we should look out for? Oh yeah, that's a great question. There, there are so many. And like you said, I think, I love that you said that kind of everyone has, like there's so many different types of attitudes and beliefs and that's true, right? And even in terms of research, like you can look at the idea of sexual attitudes so many different ways. Like, are you sort of afraid of sex or are we talking about your beliefs about how you could tackle sexual dysfunction? Like there's so many different things that yeah. we could cover here, but I'll try to say kind of centered um, on myths. So one of the reason I'm passionate about myths kind of comes from two different things that uh, I've done research on. So the first thing that I was just interested in is just, I think we have this myth uh, and I've seen it in the media and that was what re originally got me excited about it. It's just this idea that like, we think that sex should be sort of spontaneous and easy and fun. Um, you know, it often, especially if we're talking about TV shows, they often, you know, will portray like two characters who just like, are so attracted to each other and they take their clothes off and they have amazing sex. Um, yeah. And I just kind of was struck by how that's so far from the reality of long-term relationships. So I ended up kind of making a scale to look at one type of sexual beliefs, which was the idea, like, do you think you're sort of destined to have a good sex life if you find your sexual soulmate? Or do you have a more practical view and think that you really have to put effort and work into your sex life? Because my, my theory is that I think we as a society, you're really good at knowing like, oh, we have to put work into our relationship or, you know, we have to go to the gym to get a fit body. But I think we don't think about that in terms of our sex life. We're like, oh, no, 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 It should just be like, right. If it's with the right person, there should be chemistry. It should be almost this like primal urge and like not this like thing, like you might have to schedule sex or you might have to put an effort and try. So um, yeah. that was kind of one of my sort of like my pet myth, if you will, that, that I've tried to debunk with my own research. Um, and the other one that I, I don't know if debunk, I wouldn't say I've fully debunked it, but I just found it interesting to think about was the idea that like makeup sex should be super hot and passionate. So again, I think this is something I saw in the media a lot, this idea that like, you know, if you like fight in makeup, you're gonna have like amazing sex and you're super fiery and passionate. But at least in my own research, I didn't find that was the case. And I found that like, if you fought and then had sex, the sex um, was just not as good. Uh, mm. So so those are just two examples in my own research where I've tried to be like, okay, we seem to believe this, but like no one's really looked at it empirically. So what's the deal with that? Um, and the reason I kind of like to talk about beliefs about sex and the idea that maybe realizing that sex takes work can be important is it? It's because it is related to more broad sort of attitudes and beliefs about the role of sex in relationships. So I think that's where I get the most excited, kind of thinking about how do people view like where sex is placed in your relationship. Do you think it's the most important part of your relationship? Um, and this makes me think of a bunch of other research about 
some types of people who feel insecure in their relationships and are worried that their partner might leave them, they end up using sex as the barometer for their relationship quality. So they very closely tie how things are going in the bedroom with how they think the relationship is going overall. So I kind of, that's kind of what I get excited about, if that makes sense in terms of beliefs is like, what role do you think sex plays in a relationship? Um, And how do you think you can make your sex life better? Yeah, very interesting. What about some of the beliefs and attitudes when it comes to single people or people that are, you know, with sexuality that just you know, like asexual people, you know, no sex. Yes. Yeah. What are some of those? Yeah. So there's, I feel like there's a lot of beliefs and about single people, uh, misbeliefs, like, um, and uh, it's even been, been called singleism, right? Like prejudice against single people. And part of that belief is the idea that single people are really lonely and they're miserable and they're like, weird or you know what I mean like undesirable and that <laughs> can't think of a better word t- tonight um sure but I couldn't be further from the truth. yeah no 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 oh my gosh yeah I hope they don't edit this to make me sound I was like trying I to be funny <laughs> I'm good um, I know I'm good <laughs> but I think that that kind of overlooks this idea that single people often are having sex um, whether that's solo sex, using sex toys, or having partners, whether that's casual partners or more kind of frequent partners. And so I think it's harmful to kind of forget about single people when we're thinking about sex, right? I think oftentimes people are thinking sex in like, a, you know, very long-term monogamous committed relationships. Yeah. So that's a whole other thing too, our myth that like sex should always be monogamous, you know, or sex should just be between two people. Like that's something um, that isn't always true. And so I think as a society, we do very limited views of like what sex is. And I think um, not only does that ex- ex- exclude single people often, it ex- excludes people of different sexual orientations. It excludes people who are asexual and don't want sex. It excludes people in consensual non-monogamous relationships. Uh, it often excludes people with certain kinks or fetishes. Um, and at least to me, I think we often like, my sense is when you, when you say the word sex, like if we pulled your listeners, right, I think most people are going to say like have this image of penile vaginal intercourse, right? Just sort of like, you know, straight people like missionary. Um, and that and that can be harmful because it's, it's, it's like a very limited scope, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think those are already like quite a few, you know, like oh, for harmful sure. beliefs and oh, yeah. uh, misconceptions. Oh, and I could go on and on. Like we could, you know, oh, it's yeah. like we could, there's yeah. so many harmful <laughs> beliefs about sex, yeah. Yeah, so many harmful <laughs> beliefs. And I feel like, the, the, the attitudes that, that we have would be, again, shaped up by um, a lot of different factors. You know, again, how we were brought up, how our educational system worked, exactly. our influences. And, you know, I, I think it's really hard to bring this up, but I have to because, you know, as I, as I mentioned, right, I was I was reading, I've been reading a lot of poetry by Rupi Kaur. And one of the things about her and that people know is, you know, sexual harassment and trauma that mm. she went through. Mm. Um, and. And that is also hard. And um, I also yeah. think to me, like I have, uh, I have quite a few friends that have similar experiences and, you know, they've, they've come out stronger and some of them are still working through their trauma, but it's yeah. not easy. Um, yeah. And and I think that that is where the work really needs to be done, right? Because you, you not only yeah. understand the different beliefs and attitude, but you also need to understand how to combat them um, yeah. coupled with, you know, how we can advocate for sexual empowerment because people are so different. Um, and, you know, in, in an hour, we're probably not going to be able to cover all no. people, 
all no, different perspectives. No, exactly. But we can only cover, you know, the baby steps that we can take, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the baby steps we can take to empower sexual, Ooh. you know, to, to advocate for sexual empowerment and to combat all of these beliefs and, and myths that we were just talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could tackle that question so many different ways, right? So um, when I hear that question, the first thing I think of, right, is like, we need comprehensive sex ed because... Like, I guess you can think of it, I think of like what we can do as a society, we'll get down to what the individual can do, but I think that's the main thing, yeah. right? Because, and research yeah. supports that, right? It's like, if you get good, proper sexual education, that's talked, it talks about pleasure, talks about everything, very inclusive, uh, that's, you're going to have better sex life. You're not going to feel shame, all of that. And I think that's important. Um, and I think that that's kind of then going to trickle down to people feeling more comfortable talking with their friends, right? Because I think one of the issues now is like people don't always, you know, uh, they don't know a lot that that we would would probably come out if people felt more comfortable sharing about their sex life. So I'll give two quick examples. One thing that comes to mind is I think people overestimate how much sex everybody else is having in committed relationships. So there's some research done that shows on average couples have sex long-term relationships one to two times a week. And for most people, that's kind of a sweet spot in terms of maximizing their well-being. Um, and, and some people are like, what? Oh my gosh. Like I thought you had to set, have sex like four times a week, you know, or things like that. So I think that's just like an example of like, if we were more open talking about it, people would probably realize that like no one's, ha- well, not no one, of course, and we're being inclusive here, but like, it's not the norm to have sex like okay. every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yes, that's one absolutely. example. Um, the other thing yeah. is I love, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I love, it, it's a couple of years old now, but the website OMG Yes, it was like a website that's meant to, uh, it, it teaches women about their bodies. It teaches them sexual pleasure and like literally like kind of like how to videos and things like that. And I think that's a great example because that's the type of thing that's like missing, right? Because people aren't getting it from sex ed. Most times people aren't talking about this with their girlfriends, depending on, you know, or not girlfriends, sorry, but like, people in their friend group. Um, and so I think it's like, those are the types of things I think we need need to feel empowered. Um, and I think when we talk about education, that also includes just being aware of how like there still is a sexual double standard. So I think we, again, often think we've come further than we have. Like, so realizing that women are still being punished more for their sexuality than men and uh, still in most couples like the the men's pleasure is getting a privilege if we're talking about straight couples and so i think being mindful of that is really important to realize like oh um you know i feel like i'm not articulating the best this the best but what i'm trying to get at here too is like learning that the the orgasm gap between men and women where men often usually orgasm in sexual encounters whereas a lot of women don't being aware of that is an important first step Um, but what I like to teach my students is stuff about how same-sex attracted women can actually orgasm pretty frequently. So it's not actually that women can't orgasm or that it's hard to make women orgasm or things like that. It's often only women partnered with men that are having trouble orgasming. So it's more to do with sexual scripts and the acts that people are doing and not anything about women's bodies. So I know that's like a long way sort of I've gone on a tangent a little bit, but like to me, that's an example of how we can become more sexually empowered to think like, oh, it's not that as a woman, it's just impossible for me to ever orgasm. It's like, okay, well, hey, maybe it's that your partner's um not stimulating parts of your body that would make you orgasm, or maybe it's that you're feeling insecure about your body and that's why, you know, and so so I think there's yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like education is yeah. empowerment in my mind. 
Oh, yeah. absolutely. And you know what? That That is really interesting <laughs> to me. And, and I know we have an agenda and all, but I kind of want to go off script a little bit here because I think this is getting interesting because you mentioned earlier, right? One of the key things would be when you're sexually empowered, you're able to communicate your needs. Yes. Yeah. Now, now I know for a fact <laughs> after talking to friends that this is not easy at all. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. And I know, I know for myself, not easy at all. Because it's it's such a weird conversation to have, you know. It's it's such a like it's a sensitive topic, and it's kind of like how do you approach it? How do you even talk about it with your partner, no matter how close you are? Because you know, like mm -hmm. sexual intimacy, it's a whole different thing, and it's a it's another topic to touch on. But I think in the context of sexual empowerment, how do you think mm -hmm. we can approach that? How how do, how can people? What are some of the tools and tips then for people to communicate better when it comes to you know their sexual needs or what works for them? Yeah, it's something a lot of people struggle with. So yeah, 100%. Uh, one of my favorite things uh, that, again, another like stat I, I tell people is that if you ask couples, are you comfortable talking about sex? Almost all of them are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can talk to my partner about sex. And then you say, okay, well, how many of you have actually had a conversation with your partner about sex in the last year? And it's like, you know, like, I think like 20%, you know what I mean? So everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 I can talk to my partner, but no one's really doing it because it is, it's so vulnerable and it's so, there's so much meaning and beauty in it. So some strategies, um, one thing is that um, some other research shows that communicating non-verbally during sex can be really effective. So if we're talking kind of specifically about sexual empowerment in terms of getting more of what you want, just being, you know, vocalizations, just making sure your partner knows what they're, when what they're doing is actually pleasing you. I think that's one key thing. So I, I mentioned that because it's like, I know a lot of people don't want to have like a formal sit down conversation and talk about what they do and don't like. Um, so if you're not comfortable doing that, like remember that nonverbals can be really, really important. And most partners can pick up on that. Um, I think flexing your general communication muscle is important. So just like like you and your partner need to be good communicators outside the bedroom to be good communicators inside the bedroom, right? So it's, if you can't talk to your partner about how you don't like how they're cooking your steak, how are you going to talk to them about, you know, what their, their sexual routine? So I think really honing your communication skills and your relationship more broadly can really benefit you in the bedroom. And then one of the things I like to tell people is if it's more like about not feeling comfortable sharing certain sexual desires you might have, there are like some fun websites you can go on where you can like, answer a survey separately from your partner where you kind of rate a bunch of different sexual acts and then it'll give you a list later of like things you both said you might be interested to try. So I feel like now we live in a, in a day and age where we're lucky that there's websites like that. There's apps that can like maybe help you do some of the awkward communication, but I think that will only go so far, right? So you really do have to be at a certain point willing to be honest to your partner. Um, and here I feel like I should make sure I say, do not fake orgasm. Like, please do not, right? Because <laughs> um, that can dig you. Maybe that's not the best euphemism. But like, then you can dig yourself a hole that you can't get out of, right? If you've been with the same partner for a long time and you're always faking orgasm, like, and they've been doing the same thing, they're not going to really understand that they're not pleasing you. And even if, even if you're trying to backtrack later and, and be like, oh, I'm not like, this isn't working for me. They're going to feel really hurt and betrayed because you haven't let them know that um, early on. So being open and honest is really important. But I think kind of when it comes to sexual communication, it's like, it's just like any other area of your relationship, like just be sensitive to your partner, kind of know it's an area that is so um, 
you know, makes everyone feel vulnerable. So just being, you know, and people naturally do this. There's evidence to support this, that people are better. Like when we're having a, kind of a disagreement about sex versus a normal conflict with our partner, we we know it's more sensitive. So we tend to be a little bit nicer and kind of softer. And so just be mindful of that. And I think it's like, you just have to think of the long-term gains, right? It's like, I would yeah. rather have a two minute uncomfortable conversation now and have, you know, greater better sexual relationships, better, you know, that should spill over to have a better romantic relationship, better, you know, well-being, all of the things. So, so yeah, sometimes better to just sort of bite the bullet. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds to me like a lot of, of the things that you're talking about would go back to just how we communicate in general, not even, exactly. not even about, you know, sex only, but no. you said, it's got to come from outside the bedroom and then we go into the, the bedroom. I think that's so true because I think a lot of people just kind of like skip straight to that part where it's kind of like, okay, let's do it. And never actually talk about what is wrong outside of the bedroom. And then it kind of like, you know, over time, and this is what I, I just know from my friends and, you know, like watching movies and things like that, which is over time, it's just kind of like you get into the habit. It's like yeah. being in this relationship is a habit rather than yeah. actually being in it. Um, and so I think it's also important. Another thing that I, I noticed and realized is it's good. It's important to know ourselves. Mm, you know, if, oh, if you course. don't, if if I don't know myself, then I won't be able to communicate that to my partner. No, no, exactly. And if you don't know your own, if you haven't reflected on your boundaries, if you haven't reflected yeah. on you know how you view consent, if you haven't reflected on your sexual preferences, like yeah, it's going to be hard to communicate those things, right? And that's why I think sometimes especially for women, I think sometimes doing, having solo sex, like exploring, using sex toys, things like that can be really yeah. helpful in terms of knowing yeah. yourself. If we're talking about like sort of like sexually knowing yourself, but I think it's also important to just more generally know your comfort level um, and things like that to, to feel more confident, right? Because I think sexual empowerment is a lot about feeling confident in yourself and, mm -hmm. and, and feeling able to communicate what you want. Um, so I mentioned this in the previous episode that had a similar topic and I want to talk about it again because I think it's so cool. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I was in a self-development phase a couple of years ago. I just went like on a, you know, a tangent and just binge all of these self-development videos. And um, one of the things that popped up, I think one of, on one of the channels like Jubilee or something, was that this lady, she was talking about her own sexual empowerment. And she was saying, I barely orgasmed when I was in a relationship. But then one day, it's something along the line of one day, I decided that I would explore my own sexuality mm -hmm. and like what I prefer in terms of sex. Um, and and she was like, you know, like I just made a date out of a date night out of it, you know, lit some candle, prepared a towel, explored myself and had the best orgasm. And then she's like such an empowered woman, like empowered and empowering yes. woman in, in that. And I was like, that is so interesting. Why don't we talk about that more? Because a lot of yes. the time it's just kind of like when it comes to sex, it's automatically, just like you said, it's like P and V. It's like automatically mm -hmm. like two people mm -hmm. right there. But mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like that, right? No, exactly. And especially for single people. And even if you're in a relationship, like a lot of people get most of their pleasure, you know, they get a lot of pleasure from solo sex and a lot of some of the purported benefits of sex would be there for it, right? It's like you're you're yeah. having that release. And I think it's so important to explore yourself. And it's very common for women to experience orgasm, um, you know, in solo sex and not always in relationships, right? So I think it is yeah. like, you know, people talk about it in terms of self-care and it's like, yeah, why yeah. not? Yeah, yeah. And there's been great advances in terms of sex toys. Um, I think slightly less stigma against sex toys than there used to be. So 
um, you know, I think, I think we're getting there in terms of that being more normative, but yeah, I yeah. think that's kind of a common, common story in a way, right? It's cool. It's, but, but not always, um, that's not always something we talk about, but something that is bearing out in the data in terms of that being a very common experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, Again, just going to keep going with the flow and off script right here. But I really love that you emphasize the power of education. But yes, we know we did not get the kind of education that we should have got. Most of us, at least I I have not met anyone who's like, oh, yeah, like I'm very well educated in sexual education. Um, No, not really. Um, I've never met anyone like that. It's most of the time their own exploration. Yes, and yes. We, we all have different ways of exploring, but I wonder what would be some of the best ways that we can educate mm. ourselves? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like there are, I would always just say like, look for resources that are by either sex therapists or clinical psychologists or couples and family therapists. Not, I mean, there's so much out there that's just by you know, random influencers, YouTubers. I love that you said you were into personal development because there's so many like gurus who give advice. Always look at the credentials. One that I personally like that I assigned to my class is um, there's a podcast by Justin Lane Miller. He also has a website called the Psychology of Sex, Psychology of Sexuality. Double check the name, but it is one of my favorites. And it's like legit, right? Because he's like the same credentials as me. Like he's a sex researcher, but has a psychology background. Um, and it, it's a good way of kind of communicating science to the public. So that's one of the things I think, um, yeah. I would, when it comes to porn, um, that's another place that realistically, a lot of people turn to for education. And of course the, the thing that I would just caution there is I know everyone knows it's not real, but you kind of forget that oftentimes, right? So people think certain things they see in porn or in the media, you know, is normative and it, it really isn't. So I would just, make sure that, you know, at least be porn literate or get up on your porn literacy um, and not just trust everything that you that you see in porn. Yeah. I love that you emphasize the credentials part because that's really important, you know. Yes. I think that's at least what I've learned through doing this podcast and being on this show, you know, like having the science behind things would be super critical because sometimes we can just say anything, but if science oh, doesn't sure. back it, that doesn't mean anything. And I find it so fascinating because I feel like, and I mean, I get it because it's so relatable, but I think because people have experience with both you, most people often have experience with sex and relationships. They think it's an area that they are the experts in. And of course you're experts in your own lived experience. And I'm not like discounting that at all, but I think it's like, you also should recognize that some people have spent years and years, like doing empirical studies on this randomized experiments, like all of the things to try to learn some of the patterns more broadly. So yeah, I'm like always like check out the the credentials. I do also like Esther Perel personally, like in terms of just sort of more general couples relationship stuff. Um, And OMG, yes, that I mentioned, that's a good one in terms of sort of like sex skills. Um, There's also a cool app called Get Coral that some sex researchers are part of that's interesting as well. So I feel like what's exciting me is that I think we're starting to recognize that everyone got crap sex ed. And so there are, great sort of blogs and and podcasts and the apps that I've sort of been mentioning that can do, you know, go a long way in helping to fill that gap. But I think it is kind of at the end of the day, it's sort of, it needs to be something that you yourself want to prioritize and learn about and start to learn, you know, know yourself, right? Because it's like, those aren't just going to fall in your lap. You have to seek them out. And so I really encourage people to do that if that's, if they're trying to work on their sex life, like 
you know, don't listen to the random mommy blogger on Instagram or that. I mean, do, yeah. but, but, but also please listen to some, to some sources. And there's lots of great books too, right? Again, by some of these people, um, people really like sex at dawn. There's a bunch of other ones that are, that are popular, but, um, I think, I think we're, we're lucky that as it gets more comfortable talking about there, there are, um, more sources. Oh, the last book I'll mention that I do like, um, that I have read because <laughs> I like to only do ones that I read, uh, is a book called Sexual Mindfulness by Lori Brado. Uh, so she is a clinical psychologist who's done a lot of work on the idea of, um, sexual mindfulness, like applying mindfulness to the sexual space and how that can help people, um, you know, can help everyone, but especially people experiencing, um, distress in the bedroom. Mm, wow. So many great recommendations. Thank you. I think that's a perfect way to round out, you know, what we just discussed, because, you know, it's as much as we talk about the theory behind it, it's, it's time to get practical and really do some research. Oh, okay, because yes. I think it's not like you sit back and you listen to a podcast and all your problems will be solved. I think it's a constant, no, no, exactly. you know, like figuring out process. And, you know, if you know any sources, you got to look into that. Yes. And we've got great recommendations from you already. I'm sure our audience would probably know um, mm -hmm. other places to look as well. Um, but I think it, exactly. it starts with us, right? It doesn't, it doesn't start outside, it doesn't start elsewhere. And I think it's so important to know about all this stuff, especially if you're single. Yes. Oh, oh of when course. Single that's the thing. perfect time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And explore yourself, all of the things. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before we move on to something more practical, do you have anything else you would like to add in this area? Because, you know, I know that uh, in some of the questions we did mention, you know, like the outcomes of being sexually empowered, but we already touched on right. the benefits of that when it comes to well-being. So I think that's pretty much covered. Um, yeah. We did mention a little bit about uh, uh, you know, the, the different backgrounds that people have, but we didn't get mm -hmm, to cover mm -hmm. societal pressure. I'm not sure if you want to give any uh, yeah. thoughts on that at all. Yeah. So, um, some of, there's kind of a couple of things that I want to add sort of before we get more practical, but when thinking about beliefs related to sexual empowerment, I was just part of some research that's come out. Uh, we did it, um, in New Zealand, but it was an online study about how your beliefs about gender roles might affect your sexual empowerment. So a lot of research has focused on how, like, if you believe that women should be traditional, that that's not going to be good for women's sex lives, but what we were looking at is how we think it's important to really, if we're talking about mixed sex relationships, like man-woman relationships, we need to also consider how we view the other gender roles. So if I like to be truly sexually empowered for me to feel comfortable initiating and refusing sex in a relationship, I not only need to think about, you know, women being able to be, you know, less traditional and more liberated, but I also need to make sure I have more, um, modern views of men as well, because I feel like what ends up happening, I don't hate on this, but just anecdotally is there's, I think a lot of women who are, you know, not having traditional beliefs about women, like they don't think that women should be stay at home moms, or they don't think women can't swear or can't earn more money than their husband. Like we're getting better about that of women being like, no, I don't need to be traditional, but we still hold a lot of maybe harmful ideas of what men need to act like, right? So like men should always be ready for sex or, you know, men should be really tough and, and all of that. And so what we were just looking at is how we need to think about when we're, when we're talking about couples, their views about both men and women in order for us to understand their comfort in the bedroom, because I can feel sexual empowered myself all I want. But if I think it's my partner's job to initiate sex or that he needs to be a macho man, like that's not going to actually 
lead to good things in the bedroom. Um, and I think I forgot to say one of the most important parts, which, which is that couples where people feel more sexually assertive or sexually empowered or however we want to call it, they end up being more satisfied with their relationships. So sexual empowerment is really important to think about. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a great message to close with. Thank you so much yeah, for no sharing problem. that. And now let's get more practical. Yeah, so it's the last part of the show where we talk about uh, a practice and we like to ask our experts what they do for themselves mm. because this will get really good and it will get really <laughs> sort of like relatable, I would say. Um, of course, people might or might not relate to it, but we always ask, what is a practice that you use personally to actually enhance the role of sexual empowerment in your life and to promote your health, health and well-being in all aspects? Right. Okay. So I hope this isn't like a cop-out answer because I think my answer is actually much less about what I do in the bedroom. I'm sure that would be juicy and fun for people to learn about, but <laughs> it actually, to me, how I, the first step in having sex and sexual empowerment enhance well-being is to have a solid relationship and to get, you know, get my partner and I in the mood for sex. Um, oh, that was like, I should have recommended that podcast and book. Uh, Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski and her podcast and book are like huge fans, huge fans of that. Okay. Um, and what she talks about where I'm going with this is she talks about the idea of that, like, you know, especially in a longer term relationship, it's not about like your partner is just not going to be like a switch necessarily and always be in the mood for sex. But you need to sort of set up the context for pleasure to be experienced. So not just thinking, you know, desire doesn't always need to be spontaneous. Sometimes it's what, what she calls responsive and, and other researchers as well, which is like, you know, it can, you can sort of slowly build up the mood to want to engage in sex. So, you know, um, if, if my partner uh, draws me a bath and we like have a nice intimate conversation, like those might be things that then set the stage for a better sex life. So the practice that I do, um, and this might sound cheesy is just trying to make sure we do regular date nights, um, trying to every two weeks, at least, um, why I think that's important is it can help us kind of reaffirm our connection, our intimacy. There's also lots of research that if you go on an exciting date night, exciting is maybe a stretch. It doesn't even have to be exciting. Just doing something new with your partner is so important for your passion and leads to greater sexual desire. So it's not, I'm not necessarily talking about like trying a new sex position, just doing something new, like going to a new restaurant or, you know, um, taking a cooking class or, you know, going for a walk on a different part of the town, anything like that can really help you learn more about your partner and see them in a new light. And then that helps you feel more passion and kind of uh, busts you out of your rut, if you will. It can help like, you know, counteract some of that relationship boredom. And that is what's going to make you feel more passion and kind of feel in the mood for sex in the first place. So date nights, I think, um, are really key. And then to me, kind of doing that can really just help remind you that your partner is a priority. Because I think, you know, and your listeners will know this, we're all busy, we all have so much, even if you're single, you're so busy, there's so much going on in your life. And it's like, you need to curve out time for what matters. And so spending time in a way is is, is showing that you place value on that thing. Um, and so that's why I think I'm not always I haven't been the best at it this semester when I got really stressed, but, but trying to do those regular date nights, I think is like the first step, because I know this is kind of maybe repeating myself, but I think 
what I really want to make sure the listeners hear here is that like your sex life doesn't occur in a vacuum. It yeah. is so related, right, to your relationship functioning, your well-being. We've already talked about that, how like your communication and your, your relationship matters for your bedroom communication. And likewise, what happens in the bedroom can influence the relationship and the well-being. So it's like, it would make sense then that a solution to help your sex life doesn't always necessarily need to be in the sexual domain in particular. Um, and here I'll plug, if I'm allowed to, um, there's an amazing app called Coupla that makes it easier for couples to plan date nights. So it like reminds you when you're Aww. supposed to do date nights. Yeah, it's really, it's really uh, inspiring because I, I love it because it's really meant to like help you make it easier to maintain your relationship and, and, and do date nights. So um, that's something that I think is a great tool if you're like, oh, like it reminds your partner if it's time for date night or like who's planning it and it can help you book reservations like right there and give you date night ideas. Um, and And yeah, I just, I just think it's important to like, I think the more you kind of spend time with your partner and get out of your rut, that's going to then enhance your, your, your life in the bedroom for sure. Oh, I love that. It's so sweet. And yeah, I totally agree with you. It's not, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, we, we meant to ask you about any juicy detail. This is actually quite good and practical because I, I love that you mentioned earlier, right? And this goes right back to the theory. Like it, it happens in the relationship first, outside of yeah. the bedroom before it goes in there. Because if you have That's the strong true. foundation and you can communicate well, everything will, the rest will just flow. Yes, and I, I really, yeah. truly believe in that. And I agree with you. And I love the date night idea. You know, <laughs> like when I am in a relationship, I'll pick that up for sure. Thank you yes, so much yes. for sharing or, that. You know what? We should make like self date night ideas too, right? It's like you can, you yeah. know, explore yourself or Absolutely. all of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So your practice is yours, but I think what other people can take from that, depending on their uh, relationship status and, you know, like uh, sexual mm -hmm. preference. Um, yeah, date night with self is great. I love doing that. You know, I take yes. myself out to movies, dinners, and exactly. you know, like, yeah, quality, like just quality like, time with yourself. Quality time, exactly. I really, really love Actually, that. And in I fact, love, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna tell that. my friends to do that too. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that to remind me to think about the single people, because actually the the theory that I was talking about, about doing new things, making you feel passionate in your relationship, that theory is like a broader theory called self-expansion. And I mean, the word self is in it because it is all about yourself, expanding your sense of self. So another way to kind of capitalize on my hack is that even if you're not doing like date nights with a partner, just doing something new and stepping outside your comfort zone can really help you feel fulfilled because you feel like you're growing, right? So maybe you're, you know, uh, using one of those apps to learn a new language or, you know, cooking a new recipe or like what have you, running a personal best, like anything that's pushing yourself um, and your sense of self and growing because we just love to grow and as humans, right? And not just be like stuck yeah. in the same old boring, boring rut. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. Love that. Well, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of things and um, I hope that we've been as inclusive as we can to um, yes. be able to relate with, uh, to, yeah, or let our audience relate with what we are talking about so everyone can sort of take away something. Um, and if not, you just share these tips with their friends and family because I, I think some of the things that you mentioned were super interesting to me. Um, <laughs> I, I love um, that we, we start with the self, you know, that that's always really, really important. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, it's such a big emphasis, especially when we're talking about well-being and, um, you know, like all the different aspects of our well-being, right? So, so again, thank you for that. You know, it's been really great talking about that. But now let's go to open mic. It is your forum, oh, your okay. stage. 
to talk about anything you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be about the topic. Uh, but yeah, the floor is your, yours. Oh, Jen, okay. Uh, I feel like it's like so much pressure because I was like, there's so much. I feel like I've said a lot of what I kind of wanted to say. But if I do have the floor, um, I think one of my other, since we've been talking a little bit about singlehood, I think I'll just briefly talk about sort of modern dating and, and online dating and also um, one a body of work that I've I've helped with that my colleague leads on fear being single. So I love that you were talking about kind of making sure we try to think about single people in this because I think there, like I mentioned, there's singleism, prejudice against being single. There's ideas that single people are kind of miserable loners, which isn't true. Single people have really, you know, wide social networks. They can have really, you know, they have, there's a lot of amazing things about being single. Um, but what we've looked at is if you are afraid of being single, that can really backfire in a way. So people who are concerned, even if you're in a relationship right now, you can fear being single and just never want to be in that state. And that can lead people to stay in crappier relationships. Or if you fear being single and you're currently single, if you think like, oh, you know, I'm really worried about not finding a partner. Um, my colleague Stephanie Spielman has shown in her research that like you end up kind of saying yes to going on dates with like on you know, less desirable people, like people who are kind of more um, jerkish, like unresponsive, you know, me uh, kind of like assholes. <laughs> um, if I'm allowed to swear, I don't know. Uh, so so I, I like to remind people that because I think it's like, why are you afraid about, you know, if someone's high on that fear, I'm like, well, why are you afraid of being single? Single people can be fulfilled for so many different reasons. And if you're too high on this fear, you're going to actually get into a relationship that you don't even want to be in really, right? Or like one that's going to make you feel less satisfied down the line, or maybe, you know, a partner who's not going to treat you the best. So I think thinking about ways that people can lower their fears about being single and see it as a more positive state could go a long way to help people feel more fulfilled when they are single, because single people can't have great sex lives. They can have great relationships with their siblings, right? Like there's so much um, so many possibilities for having a good singlehood experience. And it's like, just don't fear it. Because if you fear that singlehood state, you're going to have a crappy time being single. And you're going to like, kind of rush into a relationship that you might not be ready for. Um, and I think like, online dating apps kind of exacerbate this, right? People kind of feel like they might never find a partner or that it's like hopeless. And people get really kind of, um, annoyed, like kind of frustrated, I guess, with the dating app experience. So um, I guess if you're listening to this, I, I don't have like many practical tips about how to reduce your fear of being single other than think of all the amazing things about being single and, and just kind of be be advised that if you're too high on this fear, you might end up, um, you know, shooting yourself in the foot, if you will, in terms of like getting into a relationship and staying in a relationship that might not be satisfying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love that so much because I, as I said, I'm single and I'm loving it, you know, I'm just embracing <laughs> it. I, I love that you said the message yourself because I have a lot of friends who are also kind of like, you know, constantly looking for relationships. Um, and there's really no nice way to say it, but I feel like it's better for them to work on themselves first. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Just like, you know, just like myself, like I realized that there's just so much self-work that needs to be done before getting into anything. And I think that's totally okay. You know, I, I take of my course. time and 
people take their time, you know, and things will happen naturally. I don't think we need to force that. And I know online dating exactly. is a very big thing nowadays. And um, yes, yes. my one of my girlfriends just keeps saying like, oh, you know, like, just go on, go on Bumble. I'm like, but I don't want to. This is not, yeah. well, then that's not the how thing. I roll. Yeah. It's not what I want to do right now. So I'm okay being just like here, being me. Yeah. And not feeling that pressure. Yeah. And I think that's so good no. too, right? Because it's like, you should only go on. And I mean, I think you're going to have a better experience on those apps if you're doing it because you want to be on them and not because you feel pressure, right? So yeah. there's research showing that, right? Like if we do things for more approach focused reasons, try to get, you know, because you want to, not because you're trying to just like avoid being single or avoid your friend getting mad at you. Like it's, it's just not going to be a good scene. And I, I did find my partner on Bumble, so lucky me, but, Aww. you know, but, but I think Congrats. it's like, well, thank you. But I love what you said too, that you need to work on yourself and be in that place. And, and the other kind of concept that I see linked to these ideas from relationship science that I think is really cool is called commitment readiness. And it's just the idea that like, you need to feel ready to be in a committed relationship. And when you do feel ready then you are more likely to put an effort into dating and have a better relationship. So I often think that too. It's like you, you, there's my partner and I wouldn't have met and wouldn't have clicked if we weren't in that space where we were point in our lives where we were both looking for commitment. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's not like everybody's going to be there right now. So it's like, yeah, don't feel pressure to use the apps. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for that. Such a beautiful message to close with. And <laughs> yeah, um, yeah as, as I said before, I found the the article that you wrote with your colleague a long, long time ago, Settling for Less Out of Fear of Being Single. And I just yes. love that title. Oh, I'm, like, I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> I know so many people do that and we need to talk about that. Thank Please stop you. doing that. Yes, don't settle for less. And yeah. it's like there's, we've shown in other research too, there's no reason these people need to settle for less, right? They're just as yeah. attractive, just as desirable, just as amazing. So like, yeah, get that out of your head. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Jess. It's been a, no a really enlightening conversation. I, I honestly think we can go on all day because, you know, if we keep digging around, there will be areas oh that we haven't uncovered. Uh, but I know it's probably late there and I should <laughs> yes. really let you go. Thank you so much for joining us and hopefully your voice will get better. I cannot believe you held through the whole conversation, even though it's been really hard to talk. So we appreciate your time and energy. And yeah, it's been a really great chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been so great. You've been listening to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by the Wellbeing Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at we.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Lu Ngo. Thanks for tuning in.